introduce our guest uh, preacher for today. Uh, normally, every year, it's kind of a green tree tradition now to have a Holly, someone from the Holly family come and uh, preach. Usually it's Scott. Uh, Scott, we put you on the back burner for your son this, uh, this, uh, this time. And uh, Scott's son, Tim, is going to come. Tim's been at Green Tree since uh, Green Tree's been around. He's grown up in this church, and he's a teacher over at Westminster uh, Christian Academy. He's also about uh, 20 days, 20 days from marriage? Yeah, three weeks uh, from his impending marriage, yeah. He's marrying Sarah Hand, uh, who is our Associate Director of Student Ministry, so you can say congratulations to them as well. But uh, Tim, Absolutely. come bring the word. Good morning. How are we? Good. A lot of familiar faces in here this service. I think when I... When I preached in service one, everybody was looking at me and they're like, we thought you'd be a lot older. Who are you? I think they were expecting my dad and then they, they got me and I don't go to first service. So I think that they were absolutely confused by me. Um, but if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you before the end of today. Uh, my name is Tim Holly. I, I am a teacher. I'm a coach over at Westminster. And I got to tell you, it, it is an incredible honor for me to be in front of you all today. Um, because as Jeremy said, when this church started, I was one of the first, a part of one of the first families um, that came here. And so for many of you, whether you know it or not, if you've been here for a long time, you've either directly or indirectly had a tremendous impact on my life. And uh, I feel like God's given me some words to share this morning. And I think it's a challenge that every single one of us can have. Um, I think that to, to calm some of the fears that some of you may have, I think it'd be very easy, and if you're a little nervous right now, I understand why, to be looking at the screen... You see we're reading 1 Corinthians 13, and so the first thought is whether you've ever been to church or not, uh, is where have I seen this before? Oh yeah, that's right. Every wedding I ever go to, somebody uses this. And so then you get a little more fearful, and here's why, because you just heard this guy's getting married in three weeks. So obviously he has marriage on his mind. So then your thought is, oh no, this young guy is going to come up in front of all of us and teach us about marriage. And let me just tell you, I am not talking about marriage. I'm not talking about relationships, I'm not talking about dating, and I wouldn't even begin to try and teach any of you, because there's probably so much that you all can teach me. Um, but what I am going to teach about this morning is something that in many ways I feel like is pretty simple. I, I don't feel like that my message is really that profound. I don't think it's something you've ever, uh, I, I don't think it's going to be something that many of you will hear for the first time, but I think that it is something that is incredibly practical. That for those of you that are sitting in this room, who always ask this question, because I ask this a lot, how do I have an impact in the community that I'm in? In Matthew 28, 19, as Jesus was talking to disciples, and right before Jesus went up to heaven, the disciples asked him, you know, what do we do? Now that you're gone, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus looked at him very calmly and said, your mission now that I'm gone is to go out and make disciples. That's your job. And so I think that for us in 2010, fast forward a few thousand years, we hear that, and I think that if you call yourself a believer in this room today, that's something that's real to you. I think that every single one of us wants to have an impact for the Lord. But I also think that that's a really scary thing. And I think it's scary because, number one, if you're anything like me, the thought that goes through your head is, who wants to listen to me? I'm not good enough. I'm not super Christian. I, I don't really have that much knowledge about it, so why would anybody ever want to listen to me? And I think the other thought that can go through your head a lot is, well, nobody really cares what Christians have to say. And I don't know how much interaction you've ever had with non-Christians, but I think it's very common when you interact with non-Christians for them to kind of give you a stiff arm and for them to kind of keep you at a distance and for them to say, you know what, 
I don't really want to hear anything that you have. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to use this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that I think a lot of times is associated with marriage and love. And we're going to look at the few verses that are before probably what you and I know the best. You know, because in 1 Corinthians 13, it goes on and it explains, you know, every descriptor about love. Love is patient, love is kind. And I think that that's the part of this book, if you know anything about this chapter, this, that's the part that a lot of us know. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the first three verses before it. And I want to challenge you all with a question today. And as I'm preaching, I want you to kind of tuck that in the back of your mind. And as I'm preaching, keep going over this question over and over and over again. And the question is this. What sort of impact could I have for the Lord if I intentionally love the people who are in my life? I'll say it one more time. What sort of impact could I have for the Lord if I intentionally love the people who are in my life? Because I think that the reality is, for those of you that call yourself believers, we all want to have an impact. But I think the biggest question mark that many of us have is, well, how do we do that effectively? How do we effectively find the people that are in our communities and love them well? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, and hopefully by the end of this, Paul will, uh, will explain some truths that, that we can go home with. And my hope is that every single one of you can go home today feeling challenged about the people who you minister to and the people who you're in your community. But before we even go to the scripture, I think we got to take a step back. We've been going through Genesis, and so here, now here we are, we're kind of tailing off, and we're randomly looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And my feeling is that in order to understand this passage really effectively, you have to understand the context in which this was written. The book of Corinthians is a letter. It was a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul, if you've never heard of Paul before, Paul was a missionary. And so Paul's job, really, when he stepped up in his faith was he went around and started churches. He would go around to a city that was a big cultural center, and he would literally pour his heart and pour his life into those people. Because his hope was, I'm going to spend a few months or I'm going to spend a few years in this city equipping these people, and then these people can go out and they can start a church so that I can now move on and I can go somewhere else and I can start a church there. And so that's what Paul did. And the church in Corinth, he spent about a year and a half with these people. He spent a year and a half of his life just giving everything he had so that when he left and moved to another city, these people could effectively run a church. But here's the problem. These people fell flat on their face. And everything that Paul taught these people just completely went by the wayside once he left. And here's what began to happen. The church that Paul had established became very corrupt. And there were a bunch of leaders within the church who started fighting with each other. And there were a bunch of members of the congregation who started fighting with each other. And if you read 1 Corinthians and you go to the beginning of the book, one of the things that Paul addresses over and over again is spiritual gifts. And Paul's frustrated with these people because... Here are these people who have all these spiritual gifts, gifts that have been given by God, yet they're completely misusing their gifts so that they can have more power. They're misusing their gifts so that, honestly, they can manipulate other people to do what they want for them. Then on top of that, what Paul begins to do is he begins to look at the sin in the church. And a lot of these people were struggling with a lot of sexual sin. And there were a lot of members of the congregation who were sleeping around with each other. They're having affairs. There's even incest going on. And so you have to imagine this. Paul's writing this letter. He's looking at these people, and he's like, what are you doing? What are you people doing? Because you've taken what's supposed to be a place where people can go, come in and learn about who they are in the relationship with the Lord, and you've completely misinterpreted this. So now all of a sudden we're stuck in a situation where people are looking in, and they're seeing corruption. And I think that as Paul's writing this letter, 
His biggest frustration is certainly with the people who are in the church. But I think it goes a step further. I think one of the reasons why Paul's so frustrated is because he knows that this church, this church in Corinth, is supposed to be the representation of who God is. So if you're a non-Christian and you're living in Corinth during this time, you're kind of peeking over the fence. What are the Christians doing? What's the church in Corinth doing? You're looking in absolutely confused. Because you have to imagine that if you're a non-Christian living in Corinth during this time, you're looking at these people who are supposed to be Christians, and the thing that goes on in your head over and over again is, well, they're really not that much different than me. Because the same things that I see happening in the church are the same things that I see around me all the time outside of the church. And so I think that Paul's frustrated by what he sees. So it got me thinking as I started preparing for this sermon, it it really got me thinking, if Paul was to write a letter to us today, if he was to write a letter to the church, and I don't mean Green Tree Community Church, and we have to get that right from the beginning. I'm not talking specifically about Green Tree. But if Paul was writing a letter to the church, and let's just say the churches in America, what would he say? Because here's my thought. The same message that he's trying to deliver to these people in Corinth may be the exact same message today. And just the same way that non-Christians were kind of peeking over the fence, looking at the Christians in Corinth, kind of confused, I really do wonder if that same thing is happening today. I think it's very easy for you and I, and, and like Jeremy said when he introduced me, I teach at a Christian school, I live in a Christian family, I'm surrounded by Christians all the time. And I think it's very easy for a lot of us, and if if Christianity is your whole community, I think it's very easy to get so focused in and forget that there are people all around us who believe nothing that we do. And that's kind of what I want to address today. Because here's my biggest fear, that we as the church, and I'm not saying you, but we as the church are misrepresenting who Jesus is supposed to be. Let me explain a little more. There was a book that was written a few years ago. The book's called Unchristian. I don't know if any of you have ever read it before. But this book was written by this guy named David Kinnaman. And David Kinnaman, guy in his early 30s, he wanted to explore what non-Christians felt about the church. And so literally, this guy traveled all across the United States and started interviewing non-Christians. And he said, as you hear about Christianity, or you turn on your TVs, or you just go out and interact with Christians in the world, what's your perception of them? Here's what David Kinnaman wrote, and if you're anything like me, this should hurt a little. He said this, the three most common perceptions of present-day Christianity are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. These big three are followed by the following negative perceptions embraced by a majority of young adults. Christians are old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of others' face, and confusing. Doesn't that hurt? As you think about who you are as a Christian and you hear this is kind of how Christianity is being represented, doesn't that hurt a little? And it's easy, I think, for you to be sitting here and saying, well, that's just, that's one guy's opinion. Go read books. Go read books from non-Christians. And I think that what you'll see is over and over and over again, This is the common thing that's said about the church today. Teach at a Christian school. I have a lot of students that I interact with, and I have a lot of personal relationships with the students that I teach. Earlier this year, I had my students write a paper for me, and the the basic gist of the paper was, how has Westminster affected your faith? And I was brokenhearted as I heard kid after kid after kid 
talk about how growing up in the church, growing up in a Christian environment, growing up in a Christian school, they felt so judged and felt, felt so hurt by people who were being hypocritical to them. And so it really got me thinking, is this just me? Is this, what, is this what I see? Or is this who we are? And I don't know what the answer to that is necessarily, but here's what I know. Here's my biggest fear in all this. Is that most non-Christians, especially non-Christians who are adults, are never going to walk into a church. Most non-Christians who are adults are never going to open up a Bible. Because why would they? And so instead what's happening in our society today, and my biggest fear of what's happening in the churches in America today, is non-Christians are looking at us the Christians, and that's their basis for who God is. So in looking at us, if this quote's accurate, and I'm not saying that this guy's 100% accurate, but if this is accurate, and what this guy sees is Christians are hypocritical, old-fashioned, boring, judgmental, too involved in politics, here's my fear, that as non-Christians are engaging in this world, now all of a sudden what they're doing is they're now looking at God, and now God is becoming judgmental. God's becoming old-fashioned. God's becoming confusing. God's becoming boring. That scares me. And I think that that's what scared Paul. Is as Paul wrote this letter, he was scared because he was looking at these Christians and he's saying, just stop. Just stop what you're doing. Stop with the power. Stop with all this other stuff and just look at what God says. Look at who Jesus was. So I know that's kind of a long-winded introduction to what we're going to read about, but I think that we have to understand the context of that in order to understand what Paul could be saying to us today. And I guess the other thing that I'll say before I move on is this. Some of you may be sitting in here and you may be saying, well, that's not me. That's not me. I see that in other Christians. I see that in the things I watch on TV. I see that in other churches, but that's not Green Tree. And I'm going to be honest with you all. I'm not going to disagree with you. Like Jeremy said, I've gone to this church almost my entire life, and I, felt like, I feel like this is a place that people can feel loved and accepted for who they are, not for what they do. And so I commend Green Tree in that way, and I'm not coming at Green Tree, but what I am saying is this. The reality is that you and I, every single one of us, every day, interacts with people who don't believe the same things that we do. And so I think that it is essential to understand who we're walking into and what we're walking into every single day. So that's kind of why I'm bringing this up, and that's why I'm saying it. So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, follow along. If you don't, the words will be on the screen, and I believe that they're in your bulletin as well. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that as we begin to unpack Paul's message to us, that our hearts and our ears and our minds wouldn't be too closed off to hear um, what you may have to say. Lord, I pray against distractions right now. Those that are in here that want nothing to do with church, those that are in here who are angry, those who are in here who just are ready to be done with the sermon and to move on to lunch and everything else they have today. God, I pray against distractions. And I pray that we could just focus in and we could just hear your word and what you have to say to us today. Praise all in your son's name. Amen. All right, what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, he is using really extreme examples 
to explain the importance of love. And so what I'm going to do real quickly is I'm going to, I'm going to go through this, these, first, these four verses, or these three verses, sorry, and I'm going to explain kind of here's the main idea, and then we're going to get to the application part of it. Here's what Paul's doing. Follow along with me if you have a Bible in front of you. Otherwise, once again, it'll be up there. He says this in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. All Paul's doing in verse 1 is this. He's trying to say, if I have spiritual gifts, and I don't live out my spiritual gifts to fulfill God's need, then it means absolutely nothing. If I'm a teacher, but I don't actually do anything that I teach about, or I don't live the life of what I teach about, it means nothing. If you have the gift of speaking in tongues and you're speaking in tongues and nobody understands what you're saying, well, guess what? It means nothing. And so what Paul's doing is he's using two examples to explain the importance of spiritual gifts. And then here's what he does, and I think that this is really interesting. He finds four examples, four, I think, really practical examples that all of us can understand to explain just how important love is. Go to verse 2. Here's what he says. And I'm going to interpret this in my own words. Because I think it maybe is easier sometimes just to do it that way. He says this, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So I'm going to take prophecy kind of from the worldly perspective. Let's say the prophetic, and I know that from a biblical perspective this looks a little different, um, but let's say the prophetic meant that you walked up to somebody and they could tell you everything that was going to happen in your life. So what Paul's saying is this, I think. He's saying, imagine this, one day you're walking down the street and you walked up to some guy and this guy just sits you down and says, I'm going to tell you every single thing that's going to happen to you for the rest of your life. And so what this guy then proceeds to do is he starts telling you where you're going to go to college, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to have, how much money you're going to make. He then answers that, or yeah, he answers that very graphic and morbid question, when you're going to die, how you're going to die. And if you were like me, you'd be sitting there and you're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? This is, this is weird. This is creepy. You scare me. Who are you? Why do you know these things? But then let's say you go home, and let's say you start living your life, and let's say that everything that 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 person said was going to happen to you starts to happen. I think that all of us could agree that that'd be really impressive. It would be really scary. We probably wouldn't want to know those things, but it would be really impressive. Paul then gives another example in here. He says, what would happen if you were out on a hike with your friend, somebody who had a ton of faith? And so you're sitting there with your friend, and he's like, you want to see how strong my faith is? Sure, show it to me. My faith is so strong that I can move a mountain. And so literally he does some weird, like, spirit finger thing with his hands, and he takes the mountain, he lifts it up, and then he moves it. And you're sitting there, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, that is scary to imagine what you could potentially do to me if you can do that to a mountain. But at the end of the day, once again, I think you would say, wow, that's impressive. Somebody could do that. He then goes on to verse 3, and I think that this is, this is probably more realistic for many of us. We don't, we don't see people moving mountains or telling us our future. So this is a little more realistic. He says, what would happen if you met somebody who was willing to give up everything that they had to the poor? Guy has a ton of money. One day he just decides, you know what, forget it. I'm going to give all my money away because I feel like there's people who need that money more than I do. Or he goes on, what would happen if you met somebody who was literally willing to die for a cause? They believed in Christianity so much, they went on a mission trip, they went to some remote place, didn't speak English, culturally different, and that person was killed because of it. I think we all know examples. We've all heard examples of missionaries who have done that before. What Paul's saying is, once again, that is impressive. All these things, they're impressive, but then what does he say? Over and over again, he uses repetition. He says, but if they have not love, it means nothing. 
And I think that what Paul's saying to us today in 2010, let's, let's use modern language. You can have all the money in the world. You can be the most successful person in the world. You can have the greatest kids. You can have the greatest job. You can have the greatest house. But if you don't have love, what does it really mean? And I started to think, why would Paul emphasize that so much more than anything else? And as I really began to think about it, it became very simple to me. And that's why I said, I think this message is very simple sometimes. And I think that sometimes we get so caught up in these big ideas that we miss the simplicity of the message of God. I think the reason why Paul is saying this is because that's who Jesus was. And I think that as Paul began to grow in his faith and Paul began to look at the message of who Jesus was, isn't this the way Jesus lived his life? I mean, think about it. Jesus comes down to earth. Jesus has a ministry. A lot of people believe that when Jesus was 30, he spent three years of his life in a ministry. So three years of Jesus' life, he's intentionally pouring into people, giving everything that he has to the people who are around him. Think about what he did. I think it's interesting. He didn't go start churches. He didn't really do all... I mean, he just went around to people and he ministered to them. He found the people who were broken. He found the people who were sick. He found the people who were handicapped. And he said, that's who I'm going to pour my life into. I'm going to find the prostitutes. I'm going to find the tax collectors. And he lived life with them. He ate meals. He prayed with them. He healed them. He was in fellowship with those people. In Matthew 9, um, this is recounted. And Jesus is kind of going around, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's going around and he's ministering to these people. And the Pharisees come up to Jesus one day, and the Pharisees say, why are you doing this? Why are you spending so much time with all these people? Why, why, why are you not focusing on the people who actually want to grow in their faith? Why are you going to the broken and the hurting and the needy? And Jesus says this, and I think it's all words that probably many of you have heard before. He says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. I think that what Paul realizes is as he looks at the life of Christ, that's what Christ did. He went around and he found people who were hurting and broken. He said, that's going to be my people. That's going to be my message. This is, going to, is who I'm going to reach out to. But then he takes it a step further. Not only is that the life that Jesus lived, but I also think that that's the life that Jesus called us to live. Once again, in Mark 12, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And the disciples come up to Jesus. And, they, and I don't know about you all, but I've always been this way. I've always read the Bible, and I've always read the gospel, and I've always been just absolutely confused by the disciples. And I don't know if you ever sit there and you're like, these guys are kind of idiots. Like, yeah, they're the people who totally transformed the church and they changed the world, but they're kind of dumb. And the reason why they're dumb is because they followed Jesus around for most of his adult life, and they watched everything that Jesus did, and then they always come back to Jesus kind of scratching their head like, well, now what do we do? And now what are you calling us to be? And, and I have to imagine that it took the utmost patience for Jesus just to sit there and be like, look, guys, I'm going to help you through this, and we're going to figure it out. But here's what Jesus tells them. They go up to Jesus, and they say, you know, Jesus, you got Ten Commandments. You gave those Ten Commandments to Moses, and now here we are, Years later, we're looking at these Ten Commandments. How do we follow them? What do we do? We're too overwhelmed. There's way too many commandments. We don't know how to live that life. And it's interesting. Jesus says, guys, it's really easy. You're really working way too hard to follow me. There's two things that I want you to do. And in Mark 12, you can go and you can look at it later today. What Jesus says to the disciples is this. There's two commandments I want you to follow. Number one, love God. Number two, love people. And I think that if you ever read the gospel and if you look at the life that Jesus lived over and over and over again, that is the message that he continues to bring to people. 
Find the people who are hurting. Find the people who are broken and pour your life into them. I think that for many of you, if you're like me, trying to figure out a way to minister to people is an overwhelming thing. And I know that there was a lot of times in my life where I felt like the only way that I can have an impact for God is if I honestly do what I'm doing right now, is if I get up in front of people and I preach. Or the only way that I can have an impact for God is if I lead a Bible study, or I go on a mission trip, or I lead worship. And all those things are good. And if you do those things, continue to do those things. But here's what I'm afraid for a lot of us, and I'm throwing myself in here as well right now. My biggest fear is that for a lot of us, we spend so much time focusing on doing all these big things because we think that's the only way I can have an impact for God. And what we're missing is that there are people in front of us every single day. All of us have people in front of us every single day who need to be loved. I don't care what you do. If you're a high school student, if you're in elementary school, if you're an adult, if you're retired, all of us, I think, interact with people every single day who need to hear who Jesus Christ is. And I think that what we do a lot of times is we feel like, I need to go tell people all these things. And I think that what Paul's asking us to do and what Jesus did in his life, he said, no, you don't need to go tell people a bunch of things. You just need to find people and you need to love them. Not because they have anything to offer you, but because that's what I've called you to be. When I think about the biggest people, and some of you are in this room right now, it's ironic, here we are a few years later, but as I think about the people who have impacted me the most in my life, or the ways that I've been impacted the most in my life, it's not from a sermon. I'm glad that Tom Ricks isn't here this morning because I may highly offend him with what I'm about to say. When I was in high school here, I don't remember one sermon that Tom ever preached. I listened every week. I even took notes. But I can't sit here today at 26 and tell him one sermon that I preached. My feeling is for many of you, you'll leave here. Some of you within the hour, you'll forget what I talked about. Maybe within the week, maybe within a year, maybe you won't, I don't know. But as I think about the ways that I was impacted the most in my life, it wasn't from a Bible study that I went to and I heard this great talk. It wasn't from its preacher getting up here and giving me this great talk. Instead what it was was I had people who came into my life and intentionally loved me exactly where I was. Whether it was teachers, it was my parents, it was coaches, it was youth leaders, I had people who said, Tim, we don't care what you're going through, we don't care how sinful of a guy you are, we're just going to love you right now where you are. And it totally rocked my world. And I think as you think about your own world and you think about your own ways that you can minister to people, I think that this could radically, radically change the worlds that you live in. I'm not, I'm not going to go as far to say it's going to change the entire world. But I think that it can change your world. And I can think it can change the people who live around you. Because if you're anything like me, here's what happens to me on most days. I wake up, I go to work, I teach class after class after class, I get done with teaching, I then go to basketball, I coach basketball, I get home at about 7 o'clock, and then I throw on TV, and then I'm in bed. And I do the same thing every day. And there's times where I find myself sitting in bed, and I honestly think to myself, what did I do today? What did I do? How did I impact the Lord? How did I have any impact on my community? Because I think that a lot of times what I do is I wake up and my whole focus is on me. How do I get through the day for me? But what God's calling us to do is take our focus off us and put it on the people that are around us every day. How do I look at the people who are in my world and love them? I'll repeat the question I asked at the beginning. What sort of impact could you have if you intentionally love the people who are in your lives? Think about it right now. Just think. 
Who are those people? Who are the people that every single day you come into contact with? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your brother or sister. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's the people that, the person that sits next to you at school. Maybe it's that kid who eats lunch every day by himself. Maybe it's the people at your job that you can't stand. The boss that you have that you're just ready to get rid of. I don't know who it is. But what I do know is there's people who need to know who God is. And what my fear is that as Christians, we are not representing God in the way that we should. We're not taking that message and living it out in our faith. And here's what I think begins to happen. Number one, all of a sudden, for those of you that are in this room, and I have friends who are like this, that they find no purpose in their day. They go to their jobs. They don't know what they did. They hate their jobs. They hate what they do. I have this with a lot of students. So I have a lot of students who come into me every day, and they're like, I hate being here. I'm like, awesome. This is perfect. We're going to get along great today. But that happens. You have kids. You know it. Every day your kids come home. How was school? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. Well, great. Perfect. I'm glad you had a successful day at school. What this begins to do is it changes the way that we live our lives. Every single one of us every day finds purpose because of the people that we see. It can be as simple as taking somebody to lunch today after church. Hey, I don't know who you are. Let's just go talk. Taking a risk. Maybe it's when you go to Starbucks every day, that barista that you see every single day who you try to ignore because you don't want to get into small talk with them. Maybe it's every single day you begin to have a relationship and you start having a conversation with them. Maybe it's the waiter or waitress that when you leave church today, you look at them and you start talking to them. But I think what ha here's what begins to happen. Here's what needs to happen. Is it as people, we got to stop looking at non-Christians, people who are different than us, as our projects. And we have to start looking at them as people. I think that that's what Paul's calling us to do. So I'll tell you one story, and then we'll get out of here. There's a story, I heard this a long time ago, and uh, a story about a high school student. And this high school student was this really socially awkward kid. He was your stereotypical, you've seen him in every movie, kind of your nerdy kid. He has no friends. He just moved to this town about a year earlier and nobody knew him and he was really shy and so he never really did a great job of meeting friends and one day he's leaving school and he's carrying all these books with him Friday afternoon books stacked high five six books I don't know about you I teach at a school every day I've never seen a kid carry one book so this is shocking here's this kid he's got six books he's walking out pretty crazy then you have this other guy who goes to the school and this other guy is standing about 30 feet away, and he's looking over, and, and this guy's kind of your popular kid. Your stereotypical, good athlete, nice guy, a lot of people like him, and he's looking over, and he's like, what, what is this? What is this kid doing? Because here's this kid who's carrying all these books, fumbling them, stumbling as he's walking through the school doors. So this kid who's a popular guy, has a lot of friends, not really that shy, decides, you know what, I'm going to go over to this kid and I'm going to talk to him, because this, this is weird. So he walks over to this kid and he says, what are you doing? And the kid looks at him, he's like, what do you mean? He's like, I've never seen anybody carry this many books on a Friday afternoon in school. What are you doing? He's like, well, I got a lot of homework to do this week. Well, yeah, we all have a lot of homework to do, but why are you carrying six books with you? Well, you know, I just, I got a lot of homework. I just want to get a head start this weekend and just really feel like this is important. And this popular kid's absolutely shocked. He's baffled because he's never seen anything like this before. So he goes, you know what? I know you don't know me. I know that we're not friends, but how about this? How about you come over and hang out at my house tonight? 
I'm inviting some guys over. Should be a pretty fun time. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to play video games. We're going to eat some pizza. Really laid back. I have a lot of nice friends. You'll, you'll feel really comfortable. Socially awkward kid kind of has his head down, kind of kicking the dirt, looks at him. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I just, I just have a lot of homework I need to do this weekend. So the popular kid com- continues to plead with him, and finally this kid agrees. So the socially awkward kid, doesn't really know anybody, shows up at this popular kid's house. They start hanging out. And when they start hanging out, they realize that they have a lot more in common than they ever thought. They dress different. They in some ways have different interests, but they're kind of the same people in two totally different social circles. So fast forward a few years, or I'm sorry, fast forward a year. These guys become best friends. Even though they have nothing in common, they end up becoming best friends. And the more they hang out, the more they realize that how much they really like each other. So on the day that they're both leaving for college, the socially awkward kid wrote his friend a letter. And he said, I want you to open this letter once you get to school. And the popular kid at this point, he's like, I don't, okay, fine. So he goes to school, goes to college, is unloading his, his, his stuff, realizes that letter's still there, and he opens up the letter and he reads it. And here's what the letter says. The letter says, there's some things about me that you don't know that I feel like in order for us to be friends, I need to tell you the whole truth. It says, there's some things that I've hidden from you, and I've honestly hidden from a lot of people, and I just need to be honest with those things. He then says this, you saved my life. You don't realize this, but you saved my life. He said, I was a person who was hurting, I was a person who was broken, and to be honest with you, the day that you came up and you talked to me, I was actually going home to kill myself. That's what I was doing. That's why I had all those books with me. Because I couldn't stand the fact that my parents would have to come back and clean my locker out. It was just too much. He said, so I was going home to kill myself, and for whatever reason on that day, that's the day that you chose to come over to me and to ask me to be your friend. And he goes, you changed my life. And the reason why you changed my life is because you showed me who I was. And I realized that people cared about me. I realized that I was validated in who I was. And I want to thank you. Here's my thought. Every single one of us encounters people every single day. I'm not asking you, and I don't think that Paul's asking you, and I don't think that Jesus is asking you to go out and do these incredibly profound things. I think he's asking you to simply look at the people who are in your life. How do you love them more? Because I think that when we begin to do that, we can have a tremendous impact with the people who are around us. And some of you may be sitting here and you may be saying, well, you don't know the people who are in my life. You don't know the people who I interact with. You don't know how bad some of these people are. And a pastor friend of mine one time, he said this quote, and I think that this quote is incredibly profound, yet it's so short, he said this. He said, the biggest way you love people whoever those people are, those people with imperfections, the, way, the biggest way that you love people with imperfections is you realize how you've been loved in yours. And I think that the reality is for every single one of us in this room who call ourselves believers, we have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. And I think that for me, that's a message that I lose almost on a daily basis. But I think that what he's saying is when you realize why you've been saved and what you've been saved from, it should radically radically change the way that you live your life so that you leave and you say i want to be different because i think that what will begin to happen is this no longer are non-christians what would happen if non-christians no longer looked at us and said christians are so judgmental christians are so boring christians are so this and that but instead they looked at us and they said you know what 
I don't really know a whole lot about this God thing. I don't even really know who Jesus is. But what I do know is that Christians love me really well. And so for those people that are peeking over the fence, the same thing that was happening in Corinth, and potentially the same thing that was, that's happening today, is then they start saying, well, if Christians are loving, and if Christians are serving, maybe that's who God is too. And so all of a sudden, people want to begin to explore a little bit more of God.